Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. This evening we'll be taking a look at the issues affecting the transgender community here in Ireland. Also tonight, world leaders have called for calm after Vladimir Putin ordered Russia's first military mobilization since World War II. President Putin has made overt nuclear threats against Europe in a reckless disregard for the responsibilities of the non-proliferation regime. Donald Trump and his adult children sued for fraud by the New York Attorney General. Zara King will have the latest live from the States. You can join the conversation online with your comments and your questions on the hashtag TonightVMTV. Good evening. Tonight we're going to talk about transgender life in Ireland. It's a topic that's often discussed a lot online and on social media, but not so often on radio and television programmes like this. And we're going to hear from trans people and explore their experience, identity and look at health services and policies in this area here in Ireland. Well, my panel tonight is trans woman Rebecca de Havian, Sunday Independent journalist Mark Ty, academic Colette Colfer, and psychotherapist Richard Hogan. No government TD was available from any of the three governing parties to discuss this issue with us tonight. Well, first, we spoke to Cody Sweeney, who came out as transgender in 2015, about his experiences. And here, um, so we can hear from Cody now. I just want to say thank you very much for having me tonight on the show. Um, it's a fantastic opportunity. And uh, yeah, I've been sharing my journey openly for the past couple of years since I came out, um, I've been questioning my gender since I was about seven or eight and I kind of knew of signs of me wanting to be male and, you know, growing up was so difficult for me because I grew up with two brothers and then an older sister and I was always jealous of my little brothers, the way they got to dress, the way they wanted to. and. I remember going up in my childhood that, you know, my mom would make me put on some dresses and I'd have a really big tantrum saying, no, I don't want to put these on because they didn't fit. And, you know, over the years when I kind of hit puberty and became known that transgender was actually a thing as a friend came out in school, uh, that was such a light bulb that went off in my head. And um, that's when I announced it to my auntie. She was the first person I told out of my entire family. Yeah, tell us about that. You spoke to your aunt first, as you say, before you spoke to your parents. Uh, what was the reaction of your family? And then in turn, did you find once you opened up about it that the supports were there for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I found uh, very great comfort in telling my auntie because um, she was uh, she's actually part of the community as well. And we had such a good we have such a good relationship together. And, you know, it was kind of easier to kind of tell someone that wasn't in the household, because if it did go wrong, then, you know, at least 
I have someone outside the house that was going to support me. And, you know, it was a thing where when I was, I actually told my auntie over text on the bus going home back to Waterford as I saw her in Dublin and she lives in Dublin and I sent her a text and I told her that I was trans and I wanted to transition and then she said she was going to tell my parents and then that initial thought saying uh, in my head went off and said I don't want to go back home because I don't know what the reaction is going to be. So I walked in that day and my parents were sitting in the sitting room and they said look we're after getting this call from your auntie saying that you want to transition you don't feel right in your body is this true? And we had a little chat about it and at start they were just like oh it's just a phase you know this is just your hormones and I remember my parents were saying oh this will all blow over and I remember going up to my room and absolutely crying my eyes out being like no this is not true how am I going to actually bring to them that this is actually reality and then a couple of days later my parents came back and said look we're going to seek help and um, because I was dealing with mental health issues at the time and they have been very supportive since the, that day. Ultimately you you have um, decided to undergo you've undergone surgery actually two surgeries in fact Cody um, bring us to to where you are now Ireland in 2022 being young and being trans do you believe Ireland to be an accepting place for the trans community? Yeah, uh, I can see Ireland being the second uh, accepting place for the trans community. I mean, it's been a roller coaster, especially in Waterford. Um, we've had uh, the burning of the flags and we had the flag, LGBT flag ripped down um, during Pride Month there, I think it was last year. Um, so that was a big step back for me in terms of the acceptance of Ireland and I think we still have a very long way to go with the community and in terms of acceptance but also uh, accepting people going through transition and being able to facilitate that because in Ireland for the trans community we do go through uh, loads of waiting lists and they take a really big toll on people's mental health and you know these questions that we get asked we have to go through assessment and we get these asked these really invasive questions of like how we have sex and like what we do with our partner and it's just you know, these kind of questions are really bad and they really trigger bad dysphoria. And I really think that, you know, there is improvement and people need to listen to us and say, look, these questions are not OK, because going through these traumatizing assessments makes transition 10 times harder because, you know, it's already hard trying to get from from A to B. Um, I mean, myself, I started my surgical transition in 2019 so I've been surgically transitioning since and you know I've had a very positive experience through my transition but I'm dealing with this barrier now of um, going through assessments and being asked like what I do with my relationships and all this kind of stuff so that's such a big barrier with me but overall I would like to see more acceptance and more uh, visibility for the community and the government coming up to us and recognising these issues that are, are, are that we're facing on a day to day. OK, well, Cody, thank you so much for joining us on the programme tonight. Um, take care and, and thank you for sharing your experience with us. Thank you so much. And here in the studio still with me is Rebecca, Mark, Colette and Richard. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. Um, Rebecca, to come to you first, you had the experience of transitioning in a very different Ireland, would you say? Born a boy in 1958, if you don't mind me revealing your age. Fine. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and just listening to Cody there, I mean, it's lovely to see that um, things are, are better, but we still have a way to go. But I think it's also very important that we do get across that um, it has changed a lot since... Yeah, I was born in June 1958 in... Granor County Longford and lived there till I was seven and then 
came to Dublin and was schooled in Dublin and all of that. Um, I started hairdressing at a very young age and I, you know, like, I mean, I kind of got into that scene and I, I always say, like, back then, you know, we had David Bowie and all of that, so there was kind of very much a gender fluidity going on there, but I was very kind of, like, unhappy and I didn't even know I existed, you know, that, like, my thoughts in my head were real. I'm Catholic, so I thought, like, this was something evil growing inside me, do you know what I mean? It wasn't until my mid-twenties or something when I was in Berlin and came across two other transgender women at that girls at that stage, that the penny dropped, that I, I found who I was, do you know what I mean? And then when I did transition here, oh my God, it was just like, I had a, like, I mean, I had a, a huge career with hair and makeup artist. I was a model agent, you know, I was um, at the top of my game and I was exposed in the papers and overnight I lost a career, you know? Um, and nobody kind of took into consideration that, yes, I was going to have a gender reassignment operations, but if I was unhappy and I was brilliant at my job then, if only I could have become Rebecca mm. then, I mean, yeah, I wouldn't have had to lose a career. You know, if it was in today's market, I could have that career and still transition and probably be champion for it today. Yeah, you believe the stigma isn't there there so much now. But it's interesting you said that that if you, uh, you know, ha had realised or was, was able to come to that position earlier, yeah. how things may have been easier for you. Did you know from a very early age that you wanted to be a woman? Yeah. Well, a girl, probably first. Girl. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was definitely three or four, you know, and I was in Granard and... My mum was actually in college in Dublin because my dad left when we were kids. So Granny kind of looked after us and we had a shop and we used to get the magazines in. But Granny always allowed me, I expressed myself, you know. And I remember when I used to be brought to Frank the Barber's to get my hair cut short, I used to like go into hysterics. And I didn't realise for years later was I wanted long hair. I didn't want my hair cut off. So I would go home and put neck curtains on my head and the whole thing. But as far back as I can remember, I always say... I had to pretend to be a boy. I've never had to yeah. pretend to be a girl. Um, or a woman now. A woman now. Um, let's talk about, I suppose, how, I suppose, this, this, the opinion and the view out there is, is online and, and that people are sharing their views on it. And, Colette, I want to bring you in on this. Having listened to the stories of two trans people, um, Cody and Rebecca, you don't subscribe to the gender identity theory. Um, could you explain that and where you're coming from? OK, well, first of all, I, I think it's great to hear from Cody and from Rebecca. And I really uh, treasure actually hearing from the experiences of transgender people. And I think that's really important. I think that in Ireland at the moment, there is a predominant way of thinking about gender identity. And um, I think it's important that diverse viewpoints are heard not on transgender people. I actually saw a tweet before I came in and it said we're talking about transgender life in Ireland. And I thought, oh no, I'm in the wrong show. I can't talk about transgender life in Ireland. I'm not transgender. Yeah. So I thought I was here to talk about gender identity theory and the mm. issues more broadly. And, and, and that, that is an issue that we're interested okay. in because, you know, whether we like it or not, that's how that is played out online. That's how it's played out in social forums. And that does have an impact as well, I think, okay. on the transgender community in Ireland. I, so in terms of it as an ID, you believe it's an ideology, isn't that right? No, I don't. I actually steer clear of using the term ideology because I think that's quite derogatory. 
I think that I, I'm an academic, I lecture in world religions. And so I come at it as uh, from the perspective of it being a belief system. I think it's really important for people who have a gender identity that they can express that and that they can talk about it. I also think some people, not everybody has a gender identity. And I think there are many religious parallels between gender identity theory and different religious systems. For example, there is a level of faith required. There is, um, gender identity is not something that's tangible. Um, it's often included with um, but, but uh, no, sexual... When you say it's not something that's tangible, yes. what does that mean? Because I mean, from, from talking to Rebecca, yes. and you, you might come in on this. And, uh, for Rebecca, and it's very real. And I, I appreciate that. It's very real. And for Cody, yes. also and I, I don't very mean real. And I don't mean to denigrate your experiences or anything like that. Um, what I'm saying is that for me, I personally don't have a gender identity. I, gender identity is a relatively new concept. It began in the 1950s in America with um, the treatment of intersex. Now that's called um, um, differences of sexual development. Mm. For me, gender identity is there is a theory. And the theory is that people have an internal sense of the, their gender mm. and that that's separate to their body. And I suppose from somebody who doesn't subscribe to it, it means that for me, the body is important rather the than the being. biological sex on that. Yes, uh, yes. And right. my concern is, can I just make one more point, Claire, is that in Ireland today, it is there is an element that people who don't subscribe to it, we are demonised and um, there are treated like blasphemers and heretics. There's new hate speech coming out. I, do you know and what? We're going to get into more of this discussion. I want to bring Richard in on, on, on uh, you know, as someone who works with people who are questioning mm. um, their gender, their gender identity, and hearing different views this evening. What do you believe the challenges uh, are around this whole area? Well, it's a, like, we have to be honest, it's a, hard, it's a difficult topic, right? Uh, and we shouldn't shy away from it. We should be able to talk about it. We should be able to hear Colette's views. And we should be able to respectfully have discourse with those views. And we have to hear Rebecca's views and we hear Mark's views. We all have to hear each other's views and that we don't cancel each other. We, we allow the discourse to happen so that we can have a broad understanding of this complex issue. And it is a complex issue. And I, from my point of view, I suppose, listening and working with teenagers for many years around this issue, and I hear Rebecca saying about the belief system, you have to believe in God, and you have to believe, you know, I hear those ideas. What I really heard Rebecca speaking about there was what I work with all the time, and that's internalised prejudice. Yeah. And that's something that's societal, that's a construct around society. And we feed that into our children. And when things like, you know, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith comes out in 21 and says that God can't uh, bless sin, that's feeding into really negative ideas that if you're sitting there as a child, if you're sitting there as a young adult, or if you're sitting there as an adult and you're married and you don't feel like you're in the right, you know, in the right gender, it's a, a, a misapprehension here is that a transgendered girl or a trans girl is a, a boy dressing as a girl or that it's some sort of sexual fantasy is absolutely the wrong. It's just an erroneous idea. That's a girl mm -hmm. whose identity is incongruent to the body that they found themselves in. Yeah, is that how you yeah. feel now when you hear... Can you, I, I actually, can you relate to that when you hear what Richard says there? To a point I can, but also it's like I'm listening to people that have never had to struggle with their gender. You know I what I mean? I appreciate that, Rebecca. Uh, yeah, and, it's very easy apologies. for people to kind of come up with that. You know, this was never a choice for me. Do you know what I mean? If I was to have a choice back then, it would not have had to go through this, you mm. know? Also, when I hear religion, it kind of really upsets me because I still have my religion. I'm still a Catholic. Mm. You know, I come from, in my head, a loving God, not, not a, a God that's going to, 
demonize me because, mm -hmm. you know, I put my... For me, I just put right what science got and wrong or whatever. And the idea that we do know. hear from proponents, I suppose, of, of, you know, where you're coming from, that that, that it, it, is a, it is a religion, the, the, yeah. the gender identity as being a religion and something that you believe or you don't believe. What, what do you I make of remember, that? Like, I mean, that kind of drove me in many, in many ways when I did transition and I lost my career and I lost everything over it. And I was still like I was brought up a Catholic. So in my head, then I did think that maybe I am, maybe I am even, maybe I, this isn't right thinking. And it, it took me down a road where people that aren't trans need to understand. It mm. took me down a road of, of drug abuse, alcohol abuse, of having to be a sex worker, having to do all these things that were not on my to-do list, but I had to do because my career was taken mm. from me. And all I wanted to ever be was me. So people like me, as Gosh. people like to talk, pay the highest price just to be ourselves. Um, Mark, uh, to talk about, I suppose, how we're talking about young people and how the whole, how it's handled in schools. And it did come to public attention with the Enoch Burke case. Um, at the heart of that is a story about a child, of course, and we need to remember that. Mm. But how are schools handling that very sensitive issue and the issue around pronouns and how a child should be addressed, um, you know, going towards their wishes of how, yeah. they, how they'd want to be addressed. So uh, when we asked the Department of Education this a couple of weeks ago in the Sunday Independent, they said they had no policy, you know, directing the schools you know, on how to deal with uh, children who, who want to socially transition, you know, change their pronouns. So we spoke to the various teacher unions. We spoke to the Irish Primary Principals Network. And basically what they told us was that they all work up different guidelines prepared by um, some of the transgender mm. activist groups like Tenny and Belong yeah. To. But some of them then as well, like the Education Training Board Ireland, they hosted a conference uh, just this summer where they had um, Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist who runs a, an organization called Genspect. And so while the, the transgender support groups um, would advocate, you know, going along with whatever the, the child wants to do. And, 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 and sometimes they say, you know, even if the parent doesn't agree, you know, don't involve the parent. And, you know, some of their advice is... It's very confusing. It's a bit confusing. Exactly. And then, then you have um, other schools going with what Genspect advises, you know, don't just rush ahead. You have to make sure that there's medical advice. Mm. Um, and I know a lot of um, transport groups don't believe that's, you know, too controlling. So it, it's, it's higgledy piggledy. So in terms of policy, look, where, where is government going with this? Because there are those calls to have this sort of a unified approach in schools. So one child isn't treated differently in one school compared to another and their experience of well, that. That's, so that's the way our education system works with um, whether it's primary schools or um, secondary schools that, you know, the curriculum is set nationally, but policies are set by local uh, mm. boards and or boards of management. So that's kind of the way schools have always run in Ireland. And I, think, I don't think the Department of Education are going to jump feet first into this. So it means for children and parents, it really depends on which school they go to and what the school's policy will be. It does prompt a myriad of issues, doesn't mm. it, Richard? It does. And um, I suppose that, that lack of a unified approach can be very confusing for families, for children, for parents yeah. um, and caregivers and schools themselves. And schools, I, I did a PhD in inclusion in schools. And one of the biggest things I found is that there's massive confusion about inclusion. What does it mean? And, and there's no unified idea around inclusion in schools. And so I think we all need to embed into schools diversity, equity and inclusion. And so that it's in there and it's embedded in the schools. And it's really important when you work in a school like I do, like the Institute of Education, it, and it really promotes diversity mm -hmm. and inclusion. You see the environment, you see the kids thriving. 
they're not just surviving their gender, they're not just surviving, they're thriving in that environment. Yeah, yeah um, Colette, on this, you know, people would say, like, if a child wants to be addressed in a certain way in school by a particular pronoun, why shouldn't they be? Yeah, I personally have no problem. Anybody says this is the pronouns I would like to be addressed by or this is the name I would like, I have no problem with that at all. Um, I think my concern is that gender identity theory, it, um, it is being rolled out by government in national strategies and it's being rolled out as fact. It is um, a contested theory. Not everybody subscribes to it. Gender identity is often treated in the same category as sexual orientation. And of course, they're hugely different things. Sexual orientation doesn't require medicalization or surgery or change of name or a change of language and pronouns. It also, imp uh, gender identity also impacts on single sex spaces. And some women, for whatever reason, they may have gone through trauma and uh, been abused or raped and they feel very strongly about having single sex spaces and they're being silenced and well, sometimes... How is, how is the state planning on, on changing that as far as you're aware? Um, well, it has already changed, but I think by rolling it out in our education system and our health system, in our media, in trade unions... And when you say by rolling it out, could you yes, explain what, what you're talking in, about? Um, it's in, there's two main strategies. There's the national LGBTI plus inclusion strategy and there's the national LGBT youth strategy. Now, these sound fantastic and I acknowledge they, there's hugely important work being carried out. But gender identity is a different issue to sexual orientation. And the government, I believe, are, are, need to listen more to medical professionals. Yeah, they yeah. need to listen to people who do not necessarily subscribe to the theory because it has an enormous impact on society and on children. Some children will transition well, and be say, happy. Some would say, and it's interesting to bring up that argument about society, that society is about caring for those on, on its margins. Absolutely. Um, and and that the, many in the trans community Absolutely. would feel we are on that. the margins. I agree. I agree. And I think that the care must involve conversation. And that conversation must involve mm. um, women, parents, medical professionals, best medical experts. That is where the care if by silencing conversation, the best it, care cannot Rebecca, be is there still scope for a, a lot of conversation around this? Like, is that how you would see it as well? Key to yeah. understanding all of this is to mm. have forums like this to talk about it. Absolutely. I think that is key because, and I don't mean this in a bad way, I, I mean it in a very general way. It's like, if, if anybody, if there's ignorance around stuff, then people have fear around it, you know, and anything that's fear driven, it just pushes people away because I've even had people come up to me and I'm kind of like around a long time now, more, I'm living more as a longer life as Rebecca than I did before. And people then will talk to me and say, oh, I was afraid to say that to you in case it would offend, mm. yeah. you know what I mean? And even in a way, that's also kind of a slight kind of way of being transphobic as well. But like people would say, and they, they kind of like relief, they kind of go, oh, it's great to be able to talk to you and ask questions. So it really is all about education, education, education. Like tomorrow, I never thought I'd see a day where I'm in the Cavern Crystal tomorrow night talking about your, your body, your style, your fashion with transgender women. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I'm being brought down there. So we need to take it outside the cities because it's towns and all of that. But we need to be able to go into schools, do trans training and all that. Trans training by trans people. Yeah, and it's interesting because we're already seeing a different mm. approach or maybe a different viewpoint on, on who does the training, mm. where the training yeah. comes from around that. Mm. Um, we do, I just want to talk about, uh, I suppose the services are available, Mark. We, we um, have a statement from um, the department. We have it actually from, from Steve, Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, around services and specific services for people um, 
trans people in the community. Um, he says the Minister for Health is engaging with clinicians and stakeholders to hear the range of views and proposals relating to gender identity services. Uh, the Minister has already held a constructive meeting with a number of clinicians from the National Gender Service. And Minister Donnelly believes that the development of a service in Ireland for children and young people is essential. Now, it's interesting he says that because there's a huge waiting list. There's a lot of people mm. waiting for referrals. Mm. Uh, and we heard from Cody about his own experience of going through the system. It's very tough, isn't it, for families? Yeah. Um, like the, the When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their Golden Glow body set includes three clinically proven bestsellers for smooth, glowing skin. While the Glow & Go facial set provides spa-level results at home. Both sets come in giftable boxes with savings up to $48 and free shipping for a limited time. For 10% off your first order site-wide, go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM. The, the provision of transgender medical services in the country is at crisis point, really. Um, there's a national gender service which treats 17-year-olds uh, and over. The waiting list there is now approaching three years just to get your first appointment. Um, for under-17s, um, the uh, children are, who are seeking treatment mm. are getting referred over to the Tavistock Clinic. Yeah. That's had its own controversies, mm. and it's only independent. We interviewed Dr. Paul Moore, a senior yeah. uh, psychologist in the National Gender Service, who since 2019 has been raising serious concerns about um, the level of care um, that, that has, been, has been given to Irish children. Is it a recruitment issue here? What's the issue? Why are we deciding, and why have we been deciding to send children... Uh, to send adolescents, to people to Tavistock? There, there is a, a, an issue with the resourcing, but also there's an ideological issue, I think. Um, if you see like the, the, the Dr. Hilary Cass interim report that came out earlier this year, she focused in on uh, kind of pressure that had been put on some doctors, which she reported, to just be affirmative, to not treat other aspects of patients who, who might have other mental health difficulties. So in, in, the, in the HSE, I think there is an ideological battle whether... The, the care will be just gender affirming. And, and what Cody complained of there is a, a different kind of treatment where people are assessed and they, they might find that uncomfortable mm. and they complain about it, you know, and right, you know, they, it's their right to complain. But a lot of doctors would say that's the right way to do it. You have to assess people. They have to set, ask really personal questions, really probing questions. And a lot, a lot of trans people feel that's too far to go mm, and that yeah. shouldn't be the type of service that's on offer. 
Yeah, it's very complex and really difficult. Like even that sounds in itself very re-traumatizing mm. for, for certain people within mm. the trans community that certainly that they feel that that's very invasive to them. And when people come to you, Richard, I mean, like how do you, from, from therapy point of view, yeah. where are the gaps in the services? Oh, well, there's, there really isn't that many services. That's the reality. Yeah. And there's, you know, I mean, that's, that is the reality. There's not, there's not that many services and the waiting lists are incredible uh, and the HC is under pressure. And so if they come to private, say if they come to private therapy, um, there's, there's huge problems. I mean, I, I've met it so many times in my clinic, you know, a young teenager dealing with this, grappling with this, on a waiting list for three, like you described, three years. Living Which in, is a critical time I'm, when you're not When you're 16, to wait to 19 for something, you know, it's just it's too far away. Okay, we're going to leave the discussion there for now, um, but we will um, return to it again. My thanks to uh, Rebecca, to Richard and to Colette. Mark is staying on with me. Coming up next, Putin's veiled nuclear war threat. Stay with us. Welcome back. U.S. President Joe Biden says Vladimir Putin's actions in Ukraine are shameless and outrageous. His comments came in an address to the U.N. earlier today and it followed an announcement by Russia that it was mobilizing hundreds of thousands of extra troops to aid the war effort. Well, these were the scenes in Moscow earlier this evening where protests took place against Vladimir Putin's so-called mobilization plan to call up those members of the army reserves. Clashes took place between police and demonstrators, a number of arrests were made there. Well, earlier I spoke to Euronews Europe correspondent Shona Murray in Brussels about EU reaction to Putin's speech. Well, the US and the EU both said that they're going to reiterate the right for Ukraine to defend its sovereign territory, regardless of these sham referendums that are going to take place in the east and southeast of the country. That means that they can defend their territory uh, under the, the legal definition of what Ukraine is, not uh, based on what Vladimir Putin decides it to be. Uh, because as obviously we know that Putin's position is that once these referendums take place and are sort of formalized by Russia, they're, you know, supposed to be Russian territory. So the EU has obviously said they won't recognize that. And then in response to this, uh, sanctions will be on the table. But the question is, Claire, what sanctions, what sectors will the EU target? Because they've gone so far with the six, six and a half packages of sanctions, and it's getting very hard to pass these sanctions unanimously amongst the member states. So uh, we wouldn't be looking at a gas sanction, for example, but something like maybe the aviation industry. I mean, there's a feeling in Brussels that these sanctions are starting to bite Russia now because certain technologies can't get to Russia now, ones that are very important uh, when it comes to fixing parts of you know, armament and, and parts of other technologies, planes and so on. So that's really what the expected response will be. Okay, Euronews Europe correspondent, uh, Shona Murray. Shona, thank you for joining us from Brussels tonight. 
Well, our news correspondent, Zara King, is in New York City at the United Nations General Assembly. Uh, Zara, thanks for joining us tonight. What's been the reaction of world leaders to Putin's threat? Well, Claire, just as we're coming to air, talking to you here, just as we speak, uh, Vladimir Zelensky is addressing the United Nations General Assembly. We actually hadn't expected that to happen for about another hour or so, so it's much earlier than anticipated. So just getting a chance to have a quick listen to what he's been saying in the last few moments. Um, he's saying that citizens of the aggressor state should not be afforded the opportunity to enjoy things like tourism. He's calling for uh, visa restrictions for Russian citizens, uh, saying that they shouldn't be allowed to enjoy uh, tourism or travel right across the world, that this is something that is a basic thing that should be put in place. He says that they need support from the international community. He says the world must help us to protect life. He says that Russia wants to spend the winter in occupied territory in Ukraine. He said we need financial support to keep internal stability. Vladimir Zelensky saying the protection of life uh, by all available means is their number one priority in Ukraine at the moment. So uh, as I say, he's addressing the UN as we speak to you this evening, uh, Claire. And earlier today, Joe Biden, a uh, very clear in condemning Russia and Putin in this latest move. Uh, it comes and it's echoed by our own Foreign Affairs Minister, Simon Coveney, who is here in New York uh, for a number of meetings, a couple of bilateral meetings taking place today. He will also sit on the UN Security Council tomorrow, Claire. Uh, he tells us that that will be quite an abrasive meeting. Uh, there will be the Ukrainian and the Russian foreign ministers at that meeting tomorrow. And Simon Coveney has been telling us that Ireland will not be found wanting in terms of letting Russia know how they feel about the current situation. I think there will be a very robust response to President Putin's uh, statement last night um, at the Security Council meeting tomorrow, and probably the most significant Security Council meeting of Ireland's time on the Security Council uh, over the last nearly two years will be tomorrow. Well, Claire, just an update in relation to the Taoiseach's travel uh, to New York. You might have heard on the news earlier on that his flight from Dublin to New York had to turn around and go back to Ireland uh, after 40 minutes into the flight. It was due to uh, a bird strike. So we're told that the Taoiseach is now on his way uh, to New York. But unfortunately, it means that he misses out on an event that was due to take place this evening with the US President uh, Joe Biden. So another unfortunate turn of events for the Taoiseach. Obviously, we know he had missed out on that meeting uh, with Joe Biden at the White House when he was here for St. Patrick's Day due to COVID. And so uh, once again, unfortunately, missing that meeting this evening. But uh, the Taoiseach due to address the uh, UN General Assembly uh, tomorrow at quarter to five New York time. So just around the time of your programme tomorrow evening. Sarah, let's talk about the other big story in New York. Donald Trump and his adult children hit with this mega fraud lawsuit. What can you tell us? Yeah, Claire, so this is the New York uh, State Attorney uh, filing a sweeping lawsuit against Donald Trump uh, and his three children, uh, Donald Trump Jr., Eric Trump and Ivanka Trump. Uh, this is in relation to um, uh, allegations that they were involved in expansive fraud involving over a decade of, uh, of fraud. And they're saying that uh, it was a more, more than 200-page lawsuit. The Attorney General alleges the fraud touched on all aspects of the Trump business, including its properties and golf courses. And uh, now Donald Trump has taken to social media to respond to this, um, issuing a statement uh, on Truth Social saying, I never thought this case would uh, be brought. He said uh, about the Attorney General in New York, he said she is a fraud who campaigned on a Get Trump platform, despite the fact that the city is one of the crime and murder disasters of the world uh, under her watch. So uh, very clear the former president isn't happy about uh, this, Claire. But um, according to the lawsuit, the Trump organization deceived lenders, insurers and tax authorities by inflating the value of properties using misleading appraisals. So interesting to see how this one will play out. Sarah, thank you for joining us from New York tonight. Thanks for that.
Well, Sunday Independent journalist Mark Tai is still here with me and I'm now also joined by Tobias Tyler, lecturer in University College Dublin. Um, let's talk about that Trump story first. Another twist in the Trump saga. Um, this is a lawsuit into his business practices and it is taken by the Attorney General Letitia James. He's saying, of course, it's a political witch hunt against him, Tobias. Yes, and I'm not really sure this really makes much difference in terms of uh, whether Trump gets support or not. People who support Trump will simply dismiss this as another conspiracy and people who hate him will continue to hate him. I'm not sure really, particularly at this stage in the electoral cycle, you know, the presidential election is still quite a long way away. And I think a lot of Americans have sort of switched off this topic because there are a lot of lawsuits all the time, investigations, legal proceedings. Of course, the judicial process in the United States is also very heavily politicized. So New York is a democratic administration. Uh, and I think a lot of Americans just have switched off, basically. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? All these lawsuits, all these allegations, the more the scandal, the more the story, it's actually nearly benefiting Donald Trump, would you say, Mark, because he can just, you know, shirk it off as a political witch hunt against him. Yeah, I think it definitely fires up his base, you know, the, the conspiracy theorists and, 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 and all the QAnons that the deep state is out to get him. Um, in this case, I think it could have serious ramifications, not just for Trump, but for his children as well. They're implicated in this uh, filing, so it's a criminal yeah, charge the, against... Yeah, what are, you know, the specific details around this? I mean, there's, there's a lot there that Letitia James, of course, a Democrat um, in this, and that's something that Trump's picking up on, but the Attorney General um, is, is taking here. I mean, they're really, she's really taken to, to the cleaners. Yeah, so basically he's accused and his family are accused of acquiescing in this and basically minimising the uh, extent of his assets and the value of the assets when he's uh, looking uh, retur returning, making his tax returns. And then when he's seeking loans, he's saying, oh yeah, I have all these assets, I have all this money, and I have all this thing. So you know, the two things aren't obviously matching up. So one of them is fraudulent, or both of them are fraudulent, is the accusation. Okay, um, let's move on to the big international story and, and President Putin's speech and his actions. The question to bias around that on mobilising military reservists and throwing in this you know, uh, increased war threat. Uh, do you think it's a sign of strength or weakness for the Russian president? It's a sign of weakness uh, because that's not what he wanted. I mean, he hadn't planned it that way. The way he had planned it was a very quick, very relatively uh, discreet war, a war that wouldn't really be, if, that wouldn't be really be felt by the vast majority of Russians. They would just see this on television and he would win and then he would be celebrated as the liberator of Russians in Ukraine. It didn't work that way. And this partial mobilization, now it's a gamble, but it's a calculated gamble. I think the reason we're not seeing a full mobilization, but a partial mobilization, so not all Russian men of fighting age are going to be conscripted, but only a certain section, very defined, roughly 300,000 men. That shows that Putin is wary, he is careful, and he's going to see how it's going to play out. But yet we have seen protests around Russia tonight. So, I mean, I wonder as far as President Putin is concerned, he needs that public support to keep doing what he's doing. Um, is this in danger of eroding all of that now, this, this mobilisation of the reservist troops and pulling more people into war when they maybe don't want to be there at all? Of course it is, and, and, and I think this is what he's worried about. I mean, if I was Putin, I would be worried about the popular backlash. What you will see almost certainly is a further intensification of repression. I mean, you've seen this. The cycle in the past has always been Putin does something unpopular and then the repression increases in order to prevent popular discontent from expressing itself. The other thing you're seeing tonight is really a rush to the borders. Uh, flights are booked out, Russians, anybody who can get out in, in the eligible age bracket is trying to get out, or many who can get out are trying to get out. And that's, of course, something that Putin also, uh, that might potentially harm his 
his credibility domestically. Yeah, the question is, I suppose, the response of this from world leaders, Mark, and, um, you know, we're hearing again, you know, what, what can Europe do and talk around more sanctions? Like, would you say the sanctions to date have worked and what's left in that, in that armory for, for Europe to sort of play against Putin when it comes to the sanctions game and increased penalties on him? I think the sanctions have worked to a degree. It, it's made things difficult for, uh, for the Russian economy. And the longer they go on, I think it's having a detrimental effect and an, an erosion of kind of the Russian economy. Um, and so the longer the war goes on, the more the more harm it's causing. But obviously there's a lot of countries that haven't subscribed to those um, sanctions, you know, big countries like India and China, which are st still trading away, uh, Iran is still trading away and providing weapons. Um, I, I, I think, yeah, it's it's the world leaders, I know, we'll have Simon Coveney giving out tomorrow, but, I, you know, that's going to be water if it ducks back in terms of the effect it'll yeah, have. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. You know, we have it. It's all being, you know, played up, of course, Ireland's seat there on the UN Security Council and the kind of influence we can have as a small country. You know, what will the message from Ireland be tomorrow at, in that assembly that has been watched with international eyes? I suppose the most powerful thing is just there's been EU solidarity. We know there's been Russian black ops operations, you know, to sow discord across the EU, you know, in terms of even supporting, you know, the Brexit campaign in, in, in Britain. But, you know, there has been remarkable unanimity among the EU states, you know, supporting uh, Ukraine throughout this war. Uh, and they will just restate that again, I imagine. Um, also, what Vladimir... Putin was saying, like, he's not bluffing, he has lots of weapons. Is that something that Western leaders believe to be a real threat or is it just something that they're kind of comfortable to talk about, this nuclear threat? It kind of gets headlines, it garners attention. Um, it makes people worried. Yes, of course, but Putin has been issuing nuclear threats since the very beginning of this invasion, so this is not a new thing. The fear, I think overall, the sort of prevailing opinion is that Putin is still very unlikely to use nuclear weapons simply because it makes no tactical sense for him to do so. There's nothing he could gain by using nuclear weapons that he couldn't do using conventional weapons. The fear is, which is a remote scenario, but not an entirely unimaginable one, is that if Putin gets so pushed with his back against the wall domestically, that he could do it as a kind of last gamble, a sort of last mm -hmm. desperate way of trying to get out of it by using, in a sense, as a way of sort of, sort of shock and awe operation, you know, to really shock the world into, into backing down or backing off in Ukraine. That's not likely, but it's, it's not entirely inconceivable, and of course, because the the consequences of something like that happening would be so absolutely unimaginably horrendous. You know, even the slightest risk is 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 very uncomfortable. And I think this is where we stand tonight. Most expectations are it won't get that far, but it's not entirely excluded. Okay, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, lots more after this break. My thanks to Tobias who joined me in studio. Mark is staying on with me. Coming up next, a warning to consumers about moving bank. Stay with us.
Welcome back. Sunday Independent journalist Mark Ty is still here with me. I'm also joined on Skype by Court Caden, a journalist with the Irish Examiner. Uh, and Court, we want to look at bank switching and the issue with Ulster Bank and KBC exiting the market. And Ulster Bank are a bit worried that people are taking a while in switching over, especially their business customers. Yeah, exactly, Claire. I think... Um the Ulster Bank in particular are very concerned about their business uh, customers in switching because it is just so much more complex for them. There's so much more documentation needed and the process takes longer and we're nearing the end of the year now. So um, you could see this week they met with various industry bodies to see if they could um, get more of a message going and get a final push out there to get these business customers to a new bank. Of course, there's an impact to all of this because Businesses need to be able to pay their employees and suppliers and receive payments um, and carry out financial duties and all sorts of other things. So it all plays out really for, for everyone here. Exactly, yeah. And I think uh, one of the main things that this process has highlighted or this situation has highlighted is our need for a simpler and streamlined switching process um, because businesses can't be in a situation again where, where this happens. And uh, as you say, there is a lot to play for. Um, people need to be paid. And like um, Jane Howard, the CEO of Ulster Bank there said this week, you know, basically the bigger the business, the more complex it is. So if you're trading in different jurisdictions, that's going to take longer um, and that kind of thing. So there are an awful lot of problems here in terms of switching as a business customer from Ulster Bank um, and from KBC as well. It's just it's just about the process that's in Ireland at the moment. Um, but not only for business customers are there risks. I mean, if no action is taking, say, for personal accounts as well, if you have an account that has an overdraft, that could be frozen if no no account no action is taken. Um, and it's not clear what will happen at that stage, if that will go to a different lender or that kind of thing. But, you know, the, basically it needs to be switched. Um, also, as you say, like if you're a business, you might not be able to pay people. And then again, if you're um, an average Joe like myself, you know, you might not be able to get uh, payments that you that you have um, into your account. So, um, yeah, there is there is a lot of um, needs to switch and soon. Yeah, like that pressure is certainly on mark for people to switch up who have these accounts because we heard about this that you know Ulster and KBC are exiting the market, but it's really not. It doesn't seem like it's a straightforward process at all for people. It's and and, and it's proving to be a big headache. And there was a lot of pressure as well for more campaigns to be out there for people to be really aware of you know to get to get going on this. Do you think people are 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 heeding that? And do you think they're finding it a simple enough process? Yeah, I think, well, I think this week's warning is timely, you know, that they still have time to act on it. Um, you know, I think for businesses, they all have financial managers usually, and, you know, they should really take this in hand. I'd, I'd worry more about the customers, like Ulster Bank has been in Ireland 180 years, it's an integral part of, you know, most Irish uh, society. Um, so it's, it's sad to see, like, this competition going from the market. I know I've moved jobs and house in the last uh, three, four months, and I'm a natural switching, procrastinator. Switching an awful lot of things. Yeah, so I, I, I left all that kind of switching addresses stuff and it was very hard. I know, you know I, I'm not an Ulster Bank customer, but ringing up the bank, you know, I'd be on hold for half an hour, 40 minutes. So I don't I don't know what the situation is with Ulster Bank if they yeah, have enough people on Yeah, and do you know, we're talking about the exit as well of, Coach, um, if you're still with us, the exit of, of bank uh, bank branches and especially say for older customers who are used to traditional banking methods they may be you know banking with Ulster Bank and suddenly all this pressure to switch up everything and to do it digitally and to do it remotely 
is difficult for people. Absolutely, Claire. And I think earlier uh, this year when AIB decided to make 70 branches cashless and the backlash that we saw against that really um, showed Ireland's people love of going into a bank and dealing with cash and that kind of thing. But some banks have made an effort to uh, give that in-person pro- process for people who need it in this very difficult situation. So uh, Permanent TSB have opened up several branches across the country or plan to uh, near branches that will be closing um, to offer people that space to come in and and switch accounts. And I think all you need is ID and at least one proof of address. So that should help people who, need, who can't do it online. It also points to the fact that if you want to switch banks you know, from a consumer point of view, to save money or to avail of offers or anything else, the banks make it pretty tricky to do that. Yeah, definitely. Um, They make it very difficult. And, you know, Ireland before this happened had very low levels of switching. And I think if we learn anything from this process, it's that we need to have a better system in place because low levels of switching just leads to poor competition. And the person who's going to end up um, with the you know facing the raw deal of that is the customer. They're not going to get get the best deals. So, um, going forward, we definitely need to learn from this experience. Uh, it's not streamlined. It's not simple, and an awful lot of people are finding it very very difficult. Okay, there we leave it. My thanks, uh, Coach, for joining us um, tonight with that story and to Mark, who's been with me here in studio. That is it from us. Uh, our program is available as a podcast on all major platforms. You can also now find us on Instagram, tonight VMTV. But from all the late team here, all my panel, good night and do take care. Virgin Media Originals podcast series.